I feel like most of these people <laughs> touting the how lucrative dropshipping is, yeah. they're selling courses on dropshipping. Yeah. That's how they're making the majority <laughs> of their money. I know. Yeah, that's basically where I was going with that. You're listening to The Sue Podcast with your host, Brian Keeney. This is the place to hear from members of the Sault Ste. Marie community and beyond. We're on a mission to give local voices a platform to share their stories and experiences. Whether it's supporting small business, discussing local politics, or tracking real estate trends. Find it all on the Sioux Podcast. Carson Beauregard currently works as the manager of enterprise services and the Millwork Center for Entrepreneurship for the city of Sault Ste. Marie and has a background in economic development, social service provision, agriculture, and food service. Carson is the owner-operator of the Plant Farm Company, a micro-farm in the Sioux, and has expertise in regenerative agriculture, food retail, business and financial planning, e-commerce, and nonprofit and cooperative business models. He has a passion for sustainable agriculture and community development and finds deep satisfaction in helping entrepreneurs from various industries grow their businesses. Welcome, Carson. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me, Ryan. You know, when I was at the event that you guys have annually, correct me if I'm wrong, I think there's this annual event that the center has, which is called the Bridges to Better Business event. Yep, correct. That was probably one of my first experiences in the Sioux period, very shortly after I moved here, but certainly one of my first experiences with any of the work that the center engages in in the community. And I got to tell you, it got me so excited for what's going on in this small town relative to a lot of other places in Ontario yeah. in terms of entrepreneurship, in terms of some of the business pitches that I heard while I was there. And I'm sure we can get into all that at some point during this episode. Just from that one event alone, it set the tone for what's going on in the Sioux. And of course, through your work, I imagine you've had the opportunity to see a lot more of the entrepreneurial projects and spirit that's been flowing through the Sioux and perhaps flowing through the center. Yeah. And I imagine that this is something that our audience would also like to hear about as well. We have a variety of topics we cover here on the podcast in terms of yeah. some of our episodes are focused entirely on business and entrepreneurship and economic growth in the Sioux. Some of our episodes are focused on things like health and wellness, and we like to cover a lot of things. When I find someone who's really involved in a specific area, a specific thing that's very relevant to the community, in this case, entrepreneurship, I just have to reach out and say, hey, you know what? You should talk to our audience. Yeah, we're glad you did. So I was pretty fresh on the job that night at the Bridges to Better Business. Yeah. I think I started a couple of weeks before. So that was a really fun event, very similar to like a Dragon's Den or Shark Tank type of event. I remember there was a business that was proposing a rock climbing facility, which I'm pretty sure the suit probably doesn't have something like that. But they were saying, we want to bring this sort of family entertainment to the community. And then one of the other ones, I think, was some sort of medical, I don't want to ruin it by describing it correctly. It was something to do with advancing technology for amputees. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Hard to describe it properly. I'm not really sure. Yeah. The thing that stood out from that particular pitch that I saw that evening was they were trying to create something that was extremely affordable and easily replicated from a manufacturing perspective, which would make this sort of solution so much more accessible. I think the two companies were called Big Lake Bouldering and then Bionics. Yes. Yeah. Good memory. (laughs) So tell us more about the work that you do at the Millworks Center for Entrepreneurship. Yeah. So Millworks is Sault Ste. Marie's local small business enterprise center or SBEC. This is an acronym that's used across the country, I think across North America. Essentially, they're publicly funded centers that are there to help entrepreneurs and small business owners start businesses, grow them, help them with different things. If you have a business idea and you're not sure 
how to start a business. Perhaps you have a business that's already started, but you need help with marketing. You need to get in touch with professionals. You need to work on some sort of financial plan. You can come to us. We will help you develop that business plan. If you're just in the idea phase, we will do our best to poke holes in that idea and then help you rebuild it to make sure it can be a successful idea. We'll connect you with professionals. We have for different resources. We have a co-working space. You came and toured it a couple of weeks ago. Yep, sure did. So if you're starting a business and you don't want to make the jump and make the commitment to rent a space long-term, you can come work at our co-working space. You have access to Wi-Fi, printing services. We've also got the incubation side of things. So if you want to make slightly more commitment and you want your own space, we do have offices available. Again, that comes with all the Wi-Fi, the printing, the business consultation services, and access to the business advisors for a few hours per week. What sort of entrepreneurial projects have you seen from the local Sioux community where they come to you and they're like, hey, I have this idea. And maybe somebody went through that, as you said, the incubation service that you have, or maybe they just signed up for the co-working space, really small. What sort of projects have you seen come through the space and then grow and take off through their involvement with the center? I've been there since October 2022, so fairly fresh. Okay. But we do have one client that is currently still in the space. This is ICA Immigration Consulting, Jennifer Johnson. Okay. Her business has been doing fantastic. She's been hiring like crazy. So she's a great success story. Amazing. This is a fantastic service for our community. Population numbers are in decline. And so immigration is how Canada has decided to fix that problem. Newcomers to the community are constantly coming. She's helping that process. Yeah, that sounds pretty significant. In fact, when I was there recently, as you had mentioned, I believe it was Jessica who was providing Tracy and I with a tour of the facility. She had mentioned that they had done so well at the center in terms of growing their business that they now are in need of a even larger space yes. that may, and correct me if I'm wrong, may actually exceed the space available at the center, yep. which I think is a good thing, right? Yep. When you're a one-person operation and you're a seedling company, you have a place that you can use as a launching pad, yep. and your hope that one day is your business will grow where the size of your team just needs more square footage, and you've right. got that many clients and you've got that much responsibility that, okay, it's time to graduate up. If we could see more small businesses in the Sioux taking advantage of a resource like that. We had an episode with Rory Ring a few episodes ago on the yeah. show. And we just talked, for anyone who watched or listened to that episode, we just talked for hours about economic development in the Sioux. And it was very fascinating from a theoretical perspective, a macro perspective. But then we turn our attention to these practical day-to-day -day services. Right. Where it's, okay, how much is this going to cost me to set this up? What am I going to get in return? You've got all those prices. I noticed that on your website. I went over to your website and I saw you have these very clearly defined pricing tiers where it's, okay, what stage are you at in your business journey? What are your needs? Here's the monthly subscription. Here's what you get and here's how you can channel that to grow your business. Like you said, this space is for incubation. If you think about, I don't know if you've ever raised chickens or anyone in the audience <laughs> has ever raised chickens or lizards or whatever, you incubate them, yeah. you start them off in a nice, soft, gentle environment yeah. and they face a little bit of adversity. And then when they're ready to fly the coop, so to speak, they move out into the real world and commit to a larger space. So that is the idea. We don't want our clients to stay there forever. We want them to get started there and then venture out into the community. And what do you think is the major challenge or the major challenges that small business owners specifically in the Sioux are facing in the journey of growing from a small incubation setting to taking their business to the next level? What are the obstacles or the barriers that they're facing, if any, to 
get to that next level. Most of the entrepreneurs that come in that haven't started the business yet, they have an idea and usually they have a skill set. But to run any business, you need multiple skill sets. Perhaps we have a client that just came through the space that is a beekeeper. And shout out to Neil's Naturals. They just launched a line of beauty products made with the honey that they produce on their farm and the beeswax. They're fantastic at keeping bees, but they needed a little help with the business planning process and developing the financials and some of the marketing. So we connected them with some professionals in community. We helped them write up a nice polished business plan that they could use to go out and access capital, bring that to the banks or grant funding agencies. It really depends on the entrepreneur and what skill set they have. I heard that there is a lot of, on that topic, a lot of support available for a lot of industries up in Northern Ontario. It seems like the government has taken an interest in growing this part of Ontario. Obviously, places like Toronto don't need any more help, but there seems to be a lot of Northern economic development programs available, grants, loans, that kind of thing. How much awareness do you think is out there regarding those kinds of programs? You mentioned here is one example of someone who's a really effective beekeeper, but maybe they didn't know that there's these other financial resources available to them. How often do you see that sort of thing happening where it's like there's just this obliviousness towards those programs? I couldn't even list all of them if I tried because, again, I'm new to the area. I'm still in the process of researching all of it. Yeah. I think people are aware that there are funding opportunities, but they may not be familiar with what they are exactly or how to get them, how to submit an application, where to submit the application. There are quite a few opportunities. It depends on the space that you're operating in. For service-based businesses, there's not a ton. Again, depends on the type of service you're offering. There's lots of opportunities in innovative sectors, manufacturing, technology. There's definitely opportunities in healthcare, lots of opportunities in agriculture, opportunities in forestry. So a wide range. And I think a lot of the programs that are created for the North are tailored to the industries that we see in the North. What sort of industries do we see in the North? I guess historically, like mining, forestry, Lots of industries that kind of rely on natural resources. We are natural resource abundant up here, I guess. I right. Could say. And I talk about this with Tracy actually quite a bit, how there's so much opportunity in the Sioux, and I may have even mentioned it on a previous episode, there's so much opportunity in the Sioux for e-commerce-based businesses, for yeah. businesses that largely provide their, whether it's goods or it's services, let's say 99% or 100% of their products and services strictly online. When I moved here, I was just shocked at how fast my home internet is. And this is home internet. This isn't even like a commercial building. And it's actually faster than my brother's internet, which is in the heart of downtown Toronto. Okay. And I thought to myself, and I've been talking to Tracy a lot about it, I was like, there's so much opportunity in the Sioux to add to the existing landscape of industry where, as you were saying, traditionally it's a lot of mining, it's a lot of forestry, but you can also introduce e-commerce. You can introduce things like a post-production editing company. I was actually talking about this with a friend of mine recently, how the world has become so digitized. There's so much opportunity in content creation, whether it's training courses, if it's documentary filmmaking, whatever. People need editors. People need services that you can just buy online. People don't care if the company that they're buying from is located in a place like Toronto or New York or LA. The company could just as well be located in a place like Sault Ste. Marie, but if the quality of the services is really good and the internet infrastructure here can support that kind of thing. The reason I keep mentioning the speed of the internet is because anyone who's involved in content creation and video editing knows you're dealing with really large files. Like even this podcast, we eat up like several gigabytes of 
space on our computers and on our servers and everything else when we're like editing stuff like this. And it does require a significant internet speed to deal with all of that to the extent that we have to like save things on cloud servers and stuff. If it's locally on our hard drives and stuff, it's not as big of a deal. But let's say you're sending a file to a client because you just edited their two hour feature length movie. Yeah. And that's a 120 gigabyte file or something like that. That stuff matters. So again, it's even beyond the media and film entertainment industry. There's all kinds of businesses that you can run through an e-commerce basis. And that was actually something I mentioned when I was at the center the other day. Like to what extent is there like an infrastructure for e-commerce businesses. I think Jessica mentioned to me that a few of your clients are actually software professionals who are working out of the space right now. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. And that's something that most of these service-based businesses that come into Millworks are interested in. It seems like a daunting task to most people to just set up a website actually. Yeah. Even though it's become fairly simple. If you can drag and drop an email, you can use a site like Squarespace or Square or Wix or Weebly to build a website fairly quickly. But again, it comes back to the skill set of each entrepreneur, and some people just aren't comfortable doing that. So yeah, we're actually going to have a session in September. I think it's September 14th with a company called Camp Tech, specifically on e-commerce and a little bit of drop shipping. So that should be a fantastic session. If anyone's interested, please check out our website. It's actually not on the website yet, but keep tabs on that. It will be up soon. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I was literally just talking to Tracy today about drop shipping. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because like... 15 years ago, dropshipping was still fresh and there was still a lot of opportunity to make a lot of money in it. Yep. And now it seems like it's just so insanely saturated. Right. I couldn't even think of a product that you could sell dropshipping. There's still a lot of people out there that swear that you can get your products from like Alibaba or something, send it off to an Amazon warehouse and then make a whole bunch of money on Amazon FBA, yep. which I imagine some people do. <laughs> But I'm not going to speculate on what percentage of that population is, but I'm I guess it's not an overwhelming majority or anything like that. I feel like most of these people <laughs> touting the how lucrative dropshipping is, yeah. they're selling courses on dropshipping. Yeah. And that's how they're making the majority of their money. I know. Yeah, that's basically where I was going with that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Put it this way. When I was first starting out in my previous entrepreneurial journey, building up a law firm, I started out in a co-working space, not unlike the Millwork Center. It was a different vibe down in the GTA. It was one of those Regis offices. If you've ever heard of Regis, they're like all over the world. And their offices are very glamorous. They're very expensive, but they're quite nice. I've never walked into a Regis office that I was unimpressed with. And they gave me this little 90 square foot office for like 750 bucks a month, which is like quite a bit more than what they're charging at the Millworks. Yeah, certainly. (laughs) I was delighted to be there. It was a wonderful adventure, but this was before the world went totally upside down. This was a pre-pandemic world. I believe that was 2014 when I moved into that space and I was there for about 15 months. Okay. At the time, the thought that in-person stuff was going to be suspended and just out of our lives, it just seemed so like no one was even thinking about that stuff. Yeah. I'm curious to know now that we've in a lot of ways moved on from this post-apocalyptic climate that we were living in for a while how has the co-working industry generally, whether it's Millworks or it's like bigger places like Regis or just WeWork, I heard a lot about them. They didn't do so well in the last right, few years. Yeah. But I guess my curiosity is like, how has the shared co-working space landscape been affected in, in more of a long-term way from the world we just came out of, the sort of insanity that we were living in? Yeah, hard to say. I know there's a lot of interest in our space. We actually just reached capacity. 
Oh, wow. And we've been talking about this. I think there's eight desks or actually six desks. And so every day we have two or three people come in and I think we have about 15 clients right now. So if 15 clients were to come in at one time, we'd have a little bit of a problem. We have overflow spaces we could send those people into, but it's almost like a run on the banks. If we had a run on our co-working <laughs> space, we'd be in trouble. It's very relevant to what's been happening in America yeah, with those bank with runs. Yeah. yeah, Valley Bank. <laughs> so we're capping the capacity at yeah. 15. That seems to work really well. But that being said, I think there's opportunity for other spaces to open up yeah. and offer similar services. Yeah, it sounds like the co-working landscape is thriving in yeah. the Sioux. Is the center the only type of place like this right now? or As far as I know, yeah, it's the only one. Okay. So that to me is an indicator that this economy has, and this is something I've said in the previous episode, there's a demand. Yep. There definitely are people who are ready and willing to invest in certain services, provide this to me and I will happily pay for this Yeah, sort of thing. And it sounds like those 15 clients that you have have entered into exactly that relationship with your center. And does the center have any plans in the medium term or long term to acquire more space to meet that kind of demand? Or is the ball being passed to like whatever other entrepreneurs that are out there who want to do what we're doing? Like, please do it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the goal, a business opportunity. So anyone who wants to start a co-working space, feel free to come into Millworks yeah. and we will help you develop that business plan yeah. to start the co-working space. <laughs> and you're training your own competitors. <laughs> yep. Yeah, we're not looking to expand at the moment. Yeah. That'd probably be a question for my superiors. They're the yeah. one to sign the contracts and the yeah. leases. So I don't know that I can speak to our goals for expansion. Fair enough. And is this, for clarity for our audience, is this a publicly funded facility or is this a privately owned for-profit center? This is a publicly funded facility. Gotcha. So we're funded in part by the city of Sault Ste. Marie. Okay. And then in part by two different Ontario ministries. Oh, wow. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. But it's really refreshing to see that both at the municipal, it sounds like at the municipal and the provincial level, yeah. they're investing in business infrastructure that clearly there is a demand for. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, Tracy, we were just talking about this. We we're like, why don't we just acquire an office space and like just create little rooms where people can rent out and have all this stuff. My discussions with her, one of the reasons we prompted our visit to the Millbrook Center to see what does a space like this look like in the Sioux yeah. as compared to what I've seen in the GTA and stuff like that. And what there is a real demand for in terms of incubation is food incubation. Yeah, let's talk um, about that. Yeah, so there's a number of entrepreneurs in the community that would love to start food businesses, but there's not really access to that sort of like commercial kitchen incubator. So that's a huge opportunity right now. So what would a commercial kitchen incubator look like if I walked into such a space? What does it do? You would essentially, you'd have all the gear that you would find in any commercial kitchen, let's say in an institution like a retirement home or a high school or university, any large building that's serving hundreds or thousands of people food every day. So you would want your range and your commercial dishwashing equipment, your prep tables, your kind of floor mounted equipment, your floor burners, and then cold storage. So freezer and fridges. And to host a bunch of different entrepreneurs, you would need perhaps more cold storage and storage space than you would in a normal commercial kitchen. seems like this is something you have experience with. Yeah, a little bit, yes. <laughs> my previous position was managing Harvest Algoma, which is part of the United Way. And so that is essentially an institutional food bank. So United Way purchased what many people in the community know as the old Croatian hall, okay. which is an events banquet hall. And so United Way turned it into this institutional food bank. So ripped the carpet out of the ballroom, turned it into a warehouse. 
and uh, put the kitchen to use for preparing meals with rescued food primarily. Um, rescued food? Yeah, there's an insane amount of food that is thrown away in grocery stores every single day. So part of what we would do at Harvest El Goma was go around to the grocery stores, collect that food that would be thrown away that was still good to eat, like a few days away from Best Before or even at Best Before, which doesn't necessarily mean that it is garbage, still edible. And so with the large cold storage capacity that we had at Harvest El Goma, we could store that food, freeze it, use it when we need to use it, turn it into soup, stews, meals that we could send out to the community, to different social service organizations. So yeah, that was essentially Harvest El Goma. Wow. That is essentially Harvest El Goma, I should say. Yeah, they're still around. You just, yes, you've just are. moved on from it. Yep. Yeah, that reminds me of, and I don't know to what extent the two organizations overlap, but there was a story I was reading about in the Sioux Today some months ago about the Compassion Hub over on Gore Street. And I think since they've had to shutter their doors due to financial reasons, but right. they had a long run where they were providing free food and shelter to basically anyone who needed it. They were showered with donations from the community, donations which were in extremely high demand, as you can imagine. Yeah. And I went and I saw it myself after I read the story in the suit today. I went to the hub and I saw all this food that had been donated. And I talked to the volunteers there and they would tell me how quickly it just gets used. Yeah. So when you were telling me about just the enormous amount of food that gets thrown away that doesn't need to be from restaurants, grocery stores, stuff like that, it got me thinking about that. There's so much food insecurity, not just Sault Ste. Marie, but in Canada in general. It just boggles my mind. Yeah, and it's something like... 50 to 60% of food produced on the planet actually goes to waste. Wow. Just due to like inefficiencies in the distribution of food. So yeah, it's really incredible. And we got tens of thousands of people dying every day from starvation. Yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. It's a preventable problem. Yeah, for sure. And it feels frustrating. It feels like, how can any one person do anything about this? Or how can we, as a collective, as a society, do something about this? And it sounds like from your previous work was being done. Yeah. But maybe someone needs to innovate. Right. Yeah. Maybe certainly. maybe a new idea needs to be introduced into the mix. Yeah. And that being said, it's getting better. Yeah. Legislation was passed. I think it was in 1994. Previously, liability prevented grocery stores and restaurants from donating food that may have gone to waste. And so legislation was passed again. I think in 1994 that protects those institutions from getting sued because someone eats some food that might get them sick. So that's fantastic. Most of this food is still perfectly good to eat. It just may not look so good or it's at its best before date. Yeah. You said it was Harvest Algoma? Yeah. You've since moved on from Harvest Algoma, but are you still in any way involved in agricultural work in terms of like social programs, entrepreneurship, anything like that? Yeah, a little bit. So I sort of work with the crew at Harvest Algoma. Okay. While I was there, we built out an urban farm. Okay. So we built two greenhouses, 32 by 100, each of them, and then just over 100 raised garden beds. So we had quite a bit of food production capacity at the center as well. Yeah. Yeah. I just went there yesterday actually to do a workshop for the green industries class at Superior Heights oh, yeah. on growing like micro salad greens. Micro salad greens. Yeah. What do you mean? Micro greens are very young salad greens essentially. So a plant like broccoli or radish that if you grow to maturity is a completely different food. You can grow it for 12 days or 14 days, 16 days. And it's a highly nutritious salad green. All the energy that's stored in the seed is released and is still present. So they are much more nutritionally dense in some ways than the end product. 
So it's like a very fast food and very easy to grow depending on which variety you choose. This is a product that I grow for my business. It's a product that you grow for your current business. Yep. I should say right now, my business is shut down. I shut it down for the winter, but in the process of getting it back up and running. One yeah, of the I was, challenges of being a farmer in a northern climate is dealing with the winter. I was just about to ask that as you were explaining this stuff to me. I'm like, I just came out of my first winter in the Sioux. And obviously, I was a, a tourist in the Sioux for many years before I moved here. But living here through a winter from yep. start to finish was like, ah, this is a shock to my system. Yeah. But it's okay. I enjoyed it overall. And as you were talking about that, I was like, how do you even tackle something like that? It's encouraging people to grow their own food and like teaching them about that stuff. And we also live in a frozen wasteland six months of the year. Yeah. How does that work? And I guess maybe like greenhouses and stuff like that. Or Yeah, that's it. It's greenhouses. Building the proper infrastructure to be able to grow year round. Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely possible. Much easier if you have access to natural gas. Thankfully, yeah. the price of natural gas right now is relatively low. Oh yeah. So if you can install a natural gas heater and design your greenhouse to use that heat efficiently. Yeah. You can grow a lot like all the way through the winter in our climate. That's pretty cool. Maybe you know this better than I do. Are there any municipal permits and bylaws and stuff to like just set up a greenhouse and start growing your own food in your own backyard? Depending yeah. on the size of your greenhouse, it's certainly allowed. If you get too big, then yeah, talk to your neighbors and make sure they are okay <laughs> yeah. with the size of your greenhouse. <laughs> this giant greenhouse in the backyard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that uh, sounds really cool. We got plenty of space in our backyard. And we're trying to brainstorm what we want to do with it. Yeah. The usual suspects came along, hot tub, pool, stuff like that. Greenhouse was not something that crossed our mind. <laughs> so you can put all those things inside a greenhouse. Oh, there you and go. In mid-February, when you got a sunny day, you have all of a sudden you have 20 degrees. <laughs> That's really smart. Probably the first thing that crossed my mind is who do I call to build this for me? Who has the materials and labor skills to construct a building like this in a backyard? Yeah, that's a challenge. Really, there's nobody I know in the community that offers that as a service. Yeah. So perhaps there's another business opportunity <laughs> for someone. <laughs> there's lots of companies that will ship you a greenhouse package yeah. that you can build yourself. Yeah. It's almost like large Legos. Yeah. If you're comfortable getting up 12 or 14 feet on a ladder, then you yeah. can probably put this together yourself. That's pretty cool. You probably should start with uh, the city permitting department yeah, and yeah. make sure you're not going over the square footage that yeah. they allow. Yeah. Yeah. Very doable. <laughs> it reminds me of those little tiny homes that you can order online. Yeah. 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 Tracy and I were looking at them and some of them get pretty lavish. They're small, yep. but you walk into them and it's like you're on the Starship Enterprise. <laughs> yeah. They're pretty like... amazing. I've been looking at them a lot lately. There's probably a ton of YouTubers that are making 3D renderings yeah. of these tiny homes and they yeah. give you a tour yeah. and they're getting millions of views. <laughs> yeah. I've been thinking maybe I need to hire a graphic designer to yeah. just make tiny home videos for me yeah. as another side hustle. Put it on an Airbnb as an experience. Yeah. So I'd charge like two or three hundred bucks a night to stay in a tiny home. <laughs> yeah. I think this is a fantastic topic for Super St. Marie. Yeah. Because there are so many people immigrating to Sault St. Marie, yeah. we do need more housing. Oh, for sure. So this is an opportunity. Again, depends on your zoning and what the city will allow. Yeah. But I think we're making progress on this yeah. in trying to densify Sault Ste. Marie rather than sprawling further and further away from the city's core. Yeah. So putting an accessory dwelling in your backyard, again, as long as the city will permit it, I think is a fantastic way to make a little bit of side income, help with the housing issue that we currently have. Yeah, it's something I've definitely Googled once or twice. And yeah. I was surprised to learn that they're like, by and large, largely legal dwellings in Ontario. 
Yeah. And this might just be my bias speaking, but you think of a, such an overregulated economy like Ontario, where it seems like there's a rule for everything. And it's like, whenever you look up something, it says you can't do it. Yeah. Like, Here's one thing you still can do until they take that away. But yeah, you're right. In a place like the Sioux, where housing is a concern, especially one of the things I noticed, and I've talked about this, I guess, briefly a little bit with the real estate episode we have with Jennifer Parsons, prices seem to be steadily rising in the Sioux because of this shortage. And although compared to places like the GTA, where prices for real estate here are significantly less than what they are in the GTA, they're still higher than what they've been for a long time. And they're starting to feel very unaffordable unless you have access to some sort of like outside wealth yep. from, I don't know, like foreign investors or you know big city jobs or whatever. I don't know where that's coming from. I don't want to rehash that whole episode all over again, but... Yeah, it got me thinking about that when you were talking about the affordability situation in the Sioux with the housing shortage. Yeah, it's a real challenge. I don't know what the solution is to it. I think it's just building more houses yeah. and making the process easier. I'm not a contractor, so I don't know all the pain points that are involved with getting a new development kind of started. Yeah. But I would love to see the city tackle that as, oh, as yeah. a real issue. Just create a toolkit to make that as easy as possible for anyone who wants to turn their single family home into a duplex or build an accessory dwelling yeah. or build a 20 unit apartment building yeah, or a tiny home community. That's just it. Like if the construction costs are relatively low and the holding costs, the cost to own this thing is mm -hmm. relatively low, then that could open the door to having more affordable rent we don't need to have landowners and owners of these tiny home things charging an arm and a leg to live in it. Yeah. If you're making a reasonable return on the investment that you made in constructing it and maybe getting a permit for it or whatever, everybody wins. Yeah. The person who spent that capital gets that capital back plus a little bit of profit. And the person who's living in it says, hey, I got a great price on what is overall a pretty comfortable living space yeah certainly yeah and if you can build something like that for between 50 and a hundred thousand dollars yeah yeah like you said everybody wins yeah i think a lot of what's driving the ever increasing rent prices is the high cost of owning those properties for landlords because at the end of the day when the landlord is deciding what they want to ask for in rent they're trying to get at least as much money as it costs them to own the place. And now when people's mortgages are getting more and more expensive, it's okay. I want to rent out this property that I've invested in. Then yeah, I'm going to have to drive up the price of rent. Yeah. But yeah, you don't think about having to take out a mortgage to get a tiny home. You just buy it. And yeah. that, that's the end of it. And yeah. you, you own it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess for anyone interested in this, I'm not sure when this will come out, but we've got a three-part series on real estate investing. Amazing. The next one is April 26th. And then the third one is May 4th, I think. So if it comes out before then, I would encourage any of the listeners to check that out, sign up for the workshops. And the demand has been very high. So we will likely run this again. We've partnered with Leanne and Mike of Nicholson Property Investments. Okay. And they're fantastic, very knowledgeable. They also have a business as mortgage brokers, so they have the experience on that side as well. Oh, yeah. Do you guys have like an events calendar where it, like people can just go to your website and be like, hey, the center's doing like a real estate investing tutorial. I'm just going to go or sign up on the website, whatever. Yeah, it's our Eventbrite page. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I use Eventbrite. I love it. Yeah. I yeah. think that's why you guys did the Bridges to Better Business event. It was all through Eventbrite. Yep. Yeah. So our team is very small and it's hard to manage events. I'm realizing. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah. So to schedule events in advance more than two months. Yeah. Very challenging for me at least. Yeah. So we only usually have two or three at a time up there. Yeah. 
but yeah, we have a schedule planned for the rest of the year. Yeah. And I can certainly talk about a few of those. Sure. So we just had one actually starting a business for newcomers. There's okay. a lot of kind of immigrants in the community cool, cool. that aren't sure if they can start businesses because they're not permanent residents. Okay. So that was with Jennifer Johnson of ICA Immigration Consulting. So that was pretty well attended. I think we will run that session again later in the year. Good. We got these three sessions on real estate investing. May 6th was that third one. We have another session on food startups. Cool. So again, any of those people that are looking to start a restaurant or a mobile food business, people can set up at the market with a tent and a barbecue and some simple infrastructure, so to speak. What date did you say that one was? That one's June 14th. June 14th. I think Tracy and I are probably going to put that in our calendar because Tracy's been wanting to start a gluten-free restaurant. Okay. And I'm going to let you get through the rest of the events you're about yeah, to talk yeah. about. But before I forget this, Tracy's allergic to gluten and she knows firsthand how difficult it is to find food options yep. that are safe for her to eat. Yep. And the thought of perhaps why not create a restaurant that when people go there, they can be confident that everything on the menu from A to Z is gluten-free and safe for people who are allergic to gluten. Yeah. I um, think that's a great opportunity. Oh, yeah. And uh, I think if we went to this event in June yep. and learned more about what is involved in a food startup... I think that would take us leaps and bounds towards that project becoming a reality. But yeah. 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 I'm with see you. see how excited Tracy is right now. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you. I'm slightly allergic to it as well. Okay. Try not to eat it as best as I can. But yeah. growing up eating it, it's hard. It's like a drug. It's like you're addicted to it. Yeah. It's tough. But yeah, we've partnered with Algoma Public Health on that one. Michael Park, a local food inspector. Okay. We will be going through the business startup side of things. Okay. And then he will be going through the regulations. That's so exciting. Yeah. And that's so relevant to us. And I imagine there's audience members out there who are like, oh my God, I've been wanting to do that too. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. I'll totally put that on my calendar. What's the other event you're going to tell us about? We have one coming up. The date is to be determined, but the small business risk management with Carly Breckenridge of Authentic Financial Solutions. Okay. Another one, we have non-timber forest product business opportunities Okay. with Gina Mohammed of PNM Technologies. Okay. This one's close to my heart. If any of the listeners are familiar with permaculture okay. or forestry, silviculture, this one should be very interesting. Basically, the idea is how do we make a business or make profit from the forest without cutting down all the trees? Gotcha. Because traditionally, that's how you do it. You harvest the timber and you sell it, which sort of destroys the ecosystem. So how do we sustainably manage the forest and also make it productive economically? I think she did her PhD on this and wrote a fantastic book called the Non-Timber Forest Product Compendium. Okay. Which is, I think, a well-kept secret. Yeah. I don't know if many people know about it, but it's a gigantic book all about all of the different business opportunities there are in the forest. And you said this was close to your heart. Yeah. Someone who loves agriculture and growing yeah. things, the forest is a part of that. Yeah. And I mentioned permaculture. I'm sure you could do 10 podcasts on permaculture yeah. and what it is. What is permaculture? I guess a simple explanation is to create a productive agricultural system that looks like the forest. Okay. That sort of replicates every level of the forest. So in a typical forest, you have the canopy, you have the large trees that kind of grow and shade everything. You have the smaller trees that mostly exist on the edge of the forest. You have the sort of herbaceous layer. These are plants that grow from two feet to four feet tall. You have the tuberous or the root plants. Essentially, the plants that the majority of them are underground. So an agricultural permaculture system is a productive forest that you intentionally design 
to grow food. Yeah, it makes sense. When did you discover, if you don't mind me asking, like when did you realize that this is something that you are really deeply passionate about? Because a lot of people out there, they go about their lives, they're not thinking about save the trees, save the forest. It sounds like such a cliche thing. Yeah. But when you talk about it, it very much comes across authentically. Right. Like it comes across as, yes, this is something I care about. And I guess my curiosity, and I always take this interest in my guests, where and when and how did you discover, whoa, this is a part of who I am? Yeah, I guess it was in high school. What was the documentary that came out? An Inconvenient Truth. They screened that in my high school when I was in grade nine or 10. Okay. And that had quite an impact on me. And I think this continues to have an impact on people. There's the whole climate justice movement. Yep. That certainly had an impact on me. And so I actually, I grew a couple plants. I grew some cannabis plants in high school. Cool. In my backyard. And, uh, <laughs> Back when and it was still illegal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's okay. Um, and I realized, uh, oh, gardening is really fun. Yeah. Like they say it's the gateway drug. It was a gateway to gardening for me. <laughs> so the year That's after funny. that, I started a vegetable garden. Every year after that, it got bigger and bigger. When I was in university, I started to venture into growing some of that for profit, selling it to local restaurants, and then getting into the, the permaculture space and the biointensive agriculture, regenerative agriculture. Very cool. And realizing it could help the planet and be a lucrative career option. It's stuff that I just never even considered. I guess anyone who watches these episodes regularly hears me say that pretty regularly. I never even considered that. But I find that I learn so much when I just sit down and I get to have these long form conversations with people who just know things that I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it was appealing to me too, because I grew up in a forested area. So yep. spent a lot of time in my childhood outdoors. The thought of getting a job, and this is ironic because I have a desk job now, but the thought <laughs> of being behind a desk every day was yeah. not appealing to me when I was a little younger. Yeah. So again, this was a way for me to check a few boxes yeah. at once. It's funny. I can echo that. When I was quite a bit younger, I would say around 16, 17, I did not aspire to a boring office desk job. And I worked my first desk job in this very stale office when I was about 17 years old. It was like this co-op thing through the school, whatever. And I was like, oh man, I cannot be able to spend my life doing this. That's for sure. And it, it so happened that I went to one of the most dry paperwork driven careers I possibly could have chosen. And then right. I did that for most of my 20s and 30s. And then it wasn't until I was like 35 that I decided to get more involved in the creative space. And that's definitely much more enriching for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But when I was a little kid, I loved to argue with my parents. So yeah. I always said, oh, I'm going to be a lawyer when I grow up. <laughs> and my girlfriend and I have recently been watching, I think we're at the last season of Suits. Oh, yeah. I know. I think I heard in the Jennifer Parsons episode that being an actual lawyer is nothing like the show. Oh, no, it's not. So you don't have the ability to just open up a folder and instantly <laughs> absorb everything on a document. No. Nor can you get away with some of the overly dramatic and like borderline abusive commentary that they'll fling at each other because it's fun to watch on TV. But if you say that like in a courtroom or a hallway of a courthouse, yeah. someone's going to report you for behaving that way. So there's a certain level of civility most of the time. And if there was one thing I'd have to pick out from that show that was like very relevant and almost a little bit too real for me was that moment in, I forget if it was season four or season five. And again, spoilers, if anyone hasn't watched the show yet, there's these moments where and it happened a few times in the show, Harvey would just start to have a panic attack. And I guess the first one or two times it happened to him, he didn't even realize what was happening. He didn't know. And you'd see like the music would change and he'd be like walking slow motion to the bathroom and he'd be like, I don't know, taking some anxiety pill or something. Yeah. 
and that overwhelming sense of instability through whatever was, I guess, happening for his character that particular season or whatever. I've known lawyers who've gone through that. I had chapters in my life where I had to battle stuff like that. Yeah. I haven't in a really long time, but it's that they got really accurately. And right. maybe they did that from talking to real lawyers or whatever. But if you want to get real and raw, I imagine any super high stress job has that. If you work a 36 hour shift at a hospital, you might have that as well. Yeah. Where, you know, you're going about your day and you're just like slammed out of nowhere with a wave of anxiety or a full-blown panic attack. And that stuff, it's scary, right? Like you're struggling to breathe, like you're dizzy. It's a legitimate medical condition that plagues professionals who are in extremely demanding, extremely high-stress jobs. So when you tell me something like, I was thinking about being a lawyer and I never did it, I'm like, congratulations, (laughs) you made the right choice. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Although it is still very interesting to me. Yeah. Being in the job that I'm in, I'm now reviewing contracts and seeing leases and talking about partnership agreements. So it's fascinating. Oh, for sure. Yeah, the law... It'll always have a special place for me, as you said a few moments ago when you were talking about permaculture, that for me, thinking about the order and structure of what makes our society and our economy tick, things like enforcing your rights through the civil process so that you are treated fairly in a business deal and all this stuff. I think that's cool, right? I wouldn't have done it for as many years as I did if I didn't find that stuff to be interesting. But I use the medical analogy once more. It's like, I'm sure there are a lot of doctors and nurses out there that are really, truly passionate about healing people. But in the journey of being able to do that thing that they love, it comes with darker sides to it as well. Right. Yeah. And I think maybe there's a few professions that are like this, but as a competent lawyer, you're almost like a magician in in the modern world, understanding the nuances of law. Similar to a computer programmer. Most of us have no idea what goes into operating all this technology that surrounds us. Yeah. I like that analogy. In fact, I've used that same analogy to explain it to other people in the past, where if you like open up an app and look into the inner workings of what makes that app work the way it does, all you're doing is you're looking at lines of code Mm. and all those lines of code is what makes this app do this or do that on your phone. Like we're scrolling on social media and we don't think about all the millions of lines of code that are happening behind the scenes. Yeah. The same is true for law on the surface. And let's say a landlord tenant dispute, that dispute is just like looking at an app on your phone. It's the surface, but then you open it up and you look at, okay, what's the underlying mechanics behind this, let's say landlord tenant relationship or the family law relationship between spouses or the employment relationship between employer employee, like all these different social relationships that are governed by law. The mechanics of it, when you look at the code, quote unquote, can be found publicly available on the internet under our provinces, or if it's federal, under our federal government's books of laws all online. And you can look up the Residential Tenancies Act, you can look up the Family Law Act, you can look up the Employment Standards Act, and you can read almost like you're reading code, yeah. you can read all those little clauses and sections and subsections and whatever and see the mechanics of what governs that relationship and understand it at that deep level the same way a computer programmer understands the way a mobile app works. Yeah. So I, I do find that there is a similarity between those two jobs. And yeah, if you're someone who's passionate about solving problems and working through puzzles... Yeah, I think you'd have a lot of fun in either one of these two types of work, whether it's programming or it's law or what have you. Yeah. Engineering. It must feel very empowering. I know the more I learn about it, it does feel empowering. Yeah. It would be fantastic to see like primary school kind of teach a little bit more. 
yeah. about law. Like, how do I structure a basic contract? Yeah. If I want to trade my snack to Billy, who sits beside me <laughs> on a daily basis, how am I going to structure that contract? <laughs> do I need a permit to sell Billy this food? Yeah. <laughs> am I yeah. going to get hit with a food inspection? Yeah. It's funny, when I took my very first ever law class in the 11th grade in high school, we learned about stuff like the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and all this. It's okay. That's not the stuff you're going to be dealing with on a daily basis. Yeah. In the real world, I do think they need to start incorporating law classes into sort of grade school for sure. But they need to make it useful and practical because people are going to graduate high school. They're going to go out and get jobs yeah. pretty much immediately, hopefully immediately after, unless they go on for post-secondary, what have you. But then they finish post-secondary and hopefully they go on and get a job. So they need to know how the Employment Standards Act works. Yeah. Pretty sure, unless things have changed since I've been in school, I'm pretty sure they're not going to teach you how the Employment Standards Act works in school. That's one thing. You're also probably going to be renting for a while until you can afford to buy your own house. So they need to teach people how the Residential Tenancies Act works, right? Like, it's all great to learn about the Constitution and stuff, but the Constitution is not what you're going to be using in your day-to-day life. You're going to need to know your rights as a tenant, your rights as an employee, that kind of thing. At the same time, you probably have to get licensed paralegals or licensed lawyers to be teaching these high school level classes in order to actually convey that information at that level of depth. I don't know if that's asking maybe a little bit too much. Like you can't expect high school teachers to be medical doctors and lawyers and engineers all wrapped up into one and prepare the next generation to do all of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I guess that brings up the topic of bringing in professionals in different industries to actually educate the kids. Yeah. Why not have a paralegal or a lawyer come in and teach a class once a week? You know, it's funny. I find that just reading the comments on TikTok, a lot of people will leave a comment saying, I learned more in this TikTok video than I did in school. Because those professionals that you're talking about, those people are making educational content on TikTok. Yeah. I know I've definitely made a lot of law related videos on TikTok that got a lot of views. And I'm not the only one. There's tons of lawyers on TikTok. There's doctors on TikTok. There's programmers. There's real estate agents. Pretty much any profession that you can think of, there's someone on TikTok who's making videos about what they know. Yeah. And there's that whole talk of the TikTok ban in America, which like I think North America is really going to lose something if they do ban that app. And like, where are people going to turn to connect with each other in terms of like, useful educational content because it's certainly not happening at that level on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. I guess maybe to some extent on YouTube, YouTube, you can learn a lot of stuff on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tricky one. I think city council just banned TikTok across city devices. Yeah. Yeah. It is spreading. And I guess that would mean that the center probably doesn't have a TikTok presence since you're publicly funded. Yeah. Yeah. I guess thankfully we didn't before. And yeah. none of us really want to yeah. <laughs> open up a TikTok account and yeah. start doing that. <laughs> and now I guess you couldn't even if you wanted to. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, a blessing in disguise for us. Yeah. But yeah, it's a shame because as you were saying, there is a demand. People need co-working spaces and were there more flexibility about this stuff. And let's say the center could have a TikTok channel. Yeah. I imagine you'd reach a really wide audience in the Sioux, educating them about how to start up a business, what resources are available to them and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of our goals is to produce more content and put it out on our Facebook, our Instagram. Oh, that's so relevant. Literally just today, Tracy and I made an announcement to some of our contacts that we are in the works to create a full service media content creation business, Okay, which would involve everything from post-production editing to also filming drone videos and all that kind of stuff because we don't want to just confine our creative energy to the four walls of this podcasting studio. There's so much more 
And I think as a vehicle for education and community awareness and teaching people useful, practical stuff, yeah. being able to create content for social media that does that, that's the primary mode that people are now getting their information from. Yeah. Yeah. There's been quite a revolution in education in the past 10 years Yeah, with the introduction of YouTube and social media. In terms of my farming background, I didn't grow up farming or gardening at all. I learned all of this stuff through YouTube, essentially YouTube and books. That doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Yeah. I learned a lot about digital marketing, building websites, post-production editing, all that stuff. It took me years, but it was pretty much 99% just self-taught from YouTube videos, TikTok videos, just like absorbing the knowledge of people who are better at this stuff than I was and then following those tutorials. Yeah. Occasionally, I'd find someone in person who had some experience working with certain softwares and we would talk about how do we edit this video this certain way and get this effect and stuff like that. But that was almost never the case. Generally, it was all self-taught. Yeah. 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 I think there's a place for all of these different modes of learning. Yeah. But it's nice to see that it's far more accessible than it used to be. I'm really excited for those events that are coming up yeah. at the center. So you host them at the center or are they elsewhere? Because yeah. I know that the Bridges to Better Business event was at the Delta. Yeah, it depends on what we think the attendance and interest will be in the event. Okay. So probably half of them are at the center in our lounge or in our boardroom. And then maybe the other half are in different rented venues around the city. Gotcha. How tough is it to find rented venues? It depends on the size of the event. Like most of our events, we don't imagine the attendance will be over like 30 people. Oh, okay. So it hasn't been too tricky for us. As a publicly funded organization, the budget is always an issue. You know what I found really fascinating while we were talking about things like computer programming, graphic design, lawyering, all this stuff is, as you probably well know, there's been such a massive earth-shattering shift in the sort of knowledge worker space where people who perform or have been generally relied upon to perform really skills-based knowledge-related tasks like designing an image on Photoshop or coming up with the specific terms and conditions of a employment contract for a very specific situation regarding an employee that's about to be hired in a company, like all this stuff that's very knowledge driven and skills driven in that way, those kinds of professionals are being replaced. They're being replaced by some really smart software out there. Like we're living in an age of artificial intelligence that'll give you goosebumps. It's nuts. And I want to get your thoughts on in terms of what you've seen in your position at the center and generally in the business landscape and the sort of the impact that the recent artificial intelligence emergences are having in what you've been looking at out there. Yeah, ChatGPT. I'm sure a lot of the listeners will be familiar with that. It's a force to be reckoned with. My coworker and I, Brent, have been using it quite a bit at the center to help us in a lot of things, help us develop business plans. A lot of the clients that come in, just sitting down and writing a business plan, which can take weeks, is such a daunting task. And they want to focus on the skill sets that they have. They want to focus on running the business, developing the products, selling those products. They don't want to Again, sit there for days and weeks writing a 30-page document to give to a funding organization. So ChatGPT and some of these other large language models are just amazing tools to help that process, to make that process quite a bit easier. All you got to do is put in your basic description of your business. Hey, I'm starting a landscaping company in Northern Ontario. We will service Sault Ste. Marie and surrounding areas specializing in grass cutting, tree care, arborist work, etc. Write me a business description and write me a marketing plan and create a financial template and it will just pump this out in seconds. 
And, and that's a great place to start. It's rarely perfect, but if writing is not your strong suit, you can take that and try to edit it and go back and forth with it and get something that looks very professional. And then you touched on the graphic design side of things. Some of the products like Mid Journey, Stable Diffusion, Dolly. Previously, you would need to hire a graphic designer to make your logo or make your business plan look good. But now you can play around with these things in the evening and create a logo that looks like it was professionally designed. Wow. With not a lot of education and experience. So scary for these professionals. It makes me think about how many years ago, I don't know how long ago, but companies started to have physical robots in assembly plants putting together things like cars. We've had robots slowly replace jobs that were largely manual labor, largely very straightforward, simple tasks. When you think about the Henry Ford style of vehicle assembly, where you had a conveyor belt of people, each performing a very simple task over and over and over again and passing it to the next person. And then you think about how companies have decades ago replaced that with machines that now do this. A lot of people were replaced. Like their jobs were just made obsolete through machines. And I guess in our very human arrogance, we thought that intelligence is something you can't replace. If you're a really creative type where you have the mind and the eye of an artist and you can make beautiful images, whether it's with a paintbrush or it's with a mouse and a keyboard, that somehow you can't be replaced because there's a human element to it. Or if you spent years and years and years studying the law and like being able to draft just the right words to govern this business relationship, that's not something a robot can do. Maybe a robot can pick up this pen and place it over here, but intelligence, that's the realm of humans, right? Like we thought this and in our own lifetimes, We've watched that assumption be disproven. And it's such a strange feeling. Like I'm simultaneously excited for the future in the most like overwhelming way. But at the same time, it's like frightening and it's eerie and it's like confusing. And it's like, where is this going? Oh, yeah. It's yeah. super frightening. I was just listening to Elon Musk. I think he was talking to Tucker Carlson about the idea of some of these large language models becoming like an artificial god. Yeah. They will get to the point where they are so powerful that they will just dwarf the intellectual capacity of humans yeah. and be able to operate on a time scale to be able to think millions of times faster than a human and make decisions that we're not even able to keep up with and start to manipulate populations. And so how do we put guardrails into these systems and ensure that they don't start directing humanity in ways that we don't want to go? And it's already happening. And I'll give you an example of not something that's totally AI-based, but more so on the directing humanity's direction sort of thing. When I would create a advertising campaign at the law firm when I was still running it, I would make a little post on Facebook and I'd say, our lawyers are having a free educational seminar for anyone who is interested in learning about their rights in family court if you are going through a divorce or you think you're probably heading for one. And by and large, these seminars were very well attended. The people that showed up were very grateful for being able to access that knowledge and information. Some of them went on to hire our lawyers to represent them in court, and our lawyers were happy to do it, so everybody won. But as the marketing guy at the company, among other responsibilities that I had, I would think about this more so on like a philosophical level because I'd be designing these ads and then Facebook's system would say, who do you want to see these ads? What's your target audience? 
And the way that you could target the audience was like scary because I'd be like, okay, show it to anyone who this is relevant to. Show it to anyone who is in a relationship that's heading south. I don't know how they know these things about everyone. It's not like just because you open up a little advertising dashboard and business account with Facebook ads, they don't tell you that. You just trust that it's going to show your ad to the relevant audience. So now all of a sudden, these powerful algorithms, these AI-driven social media algorithms, I mean, we're getting away from the chat GPT topic for a moment, mm. but these algorithms, which somehow know all about us, are directing our lives and nudging us in a certain direction because some advertiser has paid to do that. So I could just have easily put an advertisement that encouraged the target audience to purchase my couples counseling services if that was the business that I was running at the time. And perhaps those same people would have come out to a couples counseling based event rather than a divorce attorney focused event. And they would have made potentially very different life choices. I think a lot of us will hear a story like the one I just told and they'll say to themselves, these are people who were going to hire a lawyer anyway. They were going to get a divorce anyway. Your Facebook ad didn't influence that decision. And I'm like, hang on. All I did was tell Facebook to show it to people who had a rocky relationship. Yeah. What they're going to do about it rests a lot on the opportunity that's in front of them. If they have an opportunity to go to couples counseling and they see this compelling, persuasive advertisement, maybe they'll respond to that advertisement. Maybe they might give it a shot. On the other hand, if they see an advertisement that's encouraging them to learn about their rights and think about a divorce and go to court, advertising does influence people. Oh, yeah. People are impressionable. Yeah. That's why advertising works. Yeah, that's why advertising works. And now we have the power of algorithms, social media algorithms, and artificial intelligence influencing people in, obviously collaboration with advertisers and in collaboration with small business owners who are paying these social media platforms to run those ads. Yeah. So it's not just the algorithm. It's not just the platform. It's the companies in the community that are paying for that advertising platform. Yeah. But it's multiple forces which are influencing us. And when you talk to me about we're living in an age where our lives are being directed by this, it's already happening. Yeah. It doesn't have to be like a scene from The Terminator where you have these savagely <laughs> crazy, intimidating robots with guns walking around in the street. It's like our lives are already being shifted in one way or the other, whether it's our most intimate relationships or our financial decisions yeah. or it's our employment decisions. People see stuff on their social media on TikTok, I'll scroll and I'll see people who've moved to a totally different country and they're making all these videos about how happy they are. Yeah. And then I look at Tracy and I'm like, wouldn't it be nice to live in the Bahamas or something? It's social media influencing us. Yeah. And there's some AI, there's some algorithm out there that's causing that message to arrive in front of my face. Yeah. It's wild to me. Yeah. So it's like, how do we ensure that these algorithms are set up for the benefit of humanity? Yeah. And if you're not a computer programmer, how do you have any influence on this at all? Yeah. Maybe it's the cynic in me, but I don't think there's any stopping it. Yeah. Especially if we're putting our trust in somehow the law is going to catch up with technology has always outpaced regulations. Yeah. Laws and political bureaucracies take decades to get around to putting any sort of framework in place. And by that time, technology has already done its work in the population. Yeah. Yeah. To be clear, I am all for the digital God. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> After everything we just said, yeah. I'm still very much a proud tech enthusiast. Yeah. I love everything about technology. Yeah. There, there's a thought experiment that's controversial called the Rokos Basilisk. Okay. So investigate this at your own peril, at your own potential peril. Okay. I won't describe what it is, but yeah, I encourage you guys to check it out. Okay. And so just making it clear on record that I am trying to help the digital God come into existence. <laughs> yeah. 
for my own best interest. <laughs> to stay on this topic of AI, we've been using ChatGPT and a little bit of MidJourney and Dolly at Millworks to develop business plans. A client reached out the other day asking for some advice on HR policies. Okay. To see if we had anyone in the center that had experience with this. They were specifically looking to develop an offer of employment. Okay. And so I said, I don't actually have expertise and nobody here really does have expertise. We do actually have this previous client that is their business. So I did refer them to that business, but I also went on ChatGPT and said, hey, write me an offer of employment for this industry and this position. And it did a little bit of editing, took 10 minutes. I was like, here, check this out. Maybe this is what you're looking for. And then provided them with the link to ChatGPT, said, this might be a great resource to help you. Yeah. It might help you avoid a $500 consulting fee. Yeah. So yeah, we've been doing our best to put that to use in a responsible, ethical way to help our clients out. And every time I've been saying to Brent, because in the center, we've probably showed it to 15, 16 people now. Yeah. And every time Brent sort of swivels around his second monitor to show them how it works, yeah. like their jaws drop. They're, they're just <laughs> blown like, away. What is reality right now? <laughs> yeah. And they're always like, oh, I need to take a picture of that. That's perfect for the description or this section yeah. of my business plan or this advertisement that I want to throw on social media. Yeah. I would love to start recording that, that first interaction with ChatGPT specifically. And then we have this blog called Superior Strong on the Sault Ste. Marie Economic Development LinkedIn. And so these blogs are written by the economic development team. There's five or there's four of us who contribute to them. Myself, Brent Rubel, our business advisor, Rick Van Staveren, the director of economic development, Joe Turpin, who is in charge of attracting businesses to the community, and then Graham Atkinson, who is dealing with the businesses that are a little more established okay. than the ones that come into the center. And one of the articles that I just wrote was 10 businesses that you can start for under $1,000. So one of them was a graphic design business. Yep. Now with a combination of Canva and software like Midjourney, Dolly, Stable Diffusion, with a couple weeks of just playing around on your computer, you can become a graphic designer and design a logo, create an entire brand. Yeah. It's incredible. To me, it sounds so relevant to what especially a community like the Sioux needs in terms of skills development. Now what you have is the ability to perform this incredible work product with a lot less time and training that would have been needed in the past. That's so much more accessible to a population who maybe people want to develop these skills. People maybe they want to know that this is an option that they can pursue with relatively low time and money commitment and they can create some sort of side income. Like I am a member of a couple of these Facebook groups out there like support local in the Sioux. And then there's another one side jobs in the Sioux. Cause sometimes I'll hire someone off of one of these Facebook groups to do some construction work or whatever. And I see a lot of the same sort of posts. It's the same sort of skills and tasks that are being offered. It's either snow removal or cleaning homes or whatever. It's very rarely the case that you'll see someone saying, Hey, I'm a graphic designer. And if your business needs a logo or what have you, I'm, I'm an excellent artist. Right? These more, what seem to be in the past, rare skills, but as you're describing it now, they don't need to be so rare. A lot of people can pick up these skills and start making a living on it now. And yes, you could do it as a side hustle for under $1,000 
and boom, you've got like a side business going in addition to your day job. Like, why not? I imagine there's people right here in the Sioux who would love to do that if they just knew that this was an option that they can pursue. Yeah. yeah. And it takes, like you said, there's a steep learning curve for graphic design specifically, like learning how to use Photoshop properly or Illustrator yep. takes years. Oh yeah. So yeah, having access to these tools is a game changer. Oh, for sure. For a lot of different industries. Yeah. And especially entrepreneurs and small business owners. Yeah. Tracy and I were pretty novice when it came to things like Adobe Premiere Pro and Descript and Adobe Rush and all these different pieces of software that we often employ for the purposes of our content creation stuff. Like we had to teach ourselves and we were just so amazed at how much we were able to accomplish in such a short amount of time. Not because we're like geniuses or anything. It's just that these services have now made it so accessible, so easy. If you are sufficiently motivated and you've got the effort that you're willing to put in, yeah, yeah, you can learn this stuff in just a few weeks. It's it's interesting. Like you touched on the idea of technology developing over time and getting rid of jobs. Another thing that the development of technology does is just increase our ability to produce things, increase our capacity for production. And so I'm sure AI will get rid of some jobs, Yeah, but it will also just make people far more productive. Oh yeah, for like sure. Like us at the center, we're all of a sudden able to be twice as productive, three times as productive in certain areas. I think years ago, the idea of the development of technology was that the better we get with it, the less work we will have to do. We will only have to work like three days a week instead of the five day work week. We continue to be more productive. Yeah. Well, I think that movement that we're seeing more and more towards a four-day work week. So there are people who are trying to push for more time for people to tend to their mental health and just, as you say, use technology to just be more productive, get more done those four days, and then just take those three days to yourself every weekend. Yeah. That was very much the theory of innovation and technology and yes this is eventually all the robots are going to do all the work for us and the humans will just do art and enjoy life and stuff but i think to some extent capitalism and corporate greed are not allowing that to happen as smoothly as it could yeah but that can only go on for so long i think people are starting to notice that a lot of people are being treated as cogs in the machine and they don't want that anymore yeah and i think the pandemic also brought that to light people start to realize that we can stop going to the office and the world's not going to explode. Like companies, at least the really big ones that profit off of keeping people locked up in offices, it was all just a facade. Like it wasn't totally necessary. And now you're seeing, actually, this is super relevant to what's happening at the federal Canadian level right now with the public sector strike. One of the issues that was on the table, it wasn't just about straight wages, end of story. From what I was hearing on the news, there was also this other aspect to it, which is allowing public service employees to continue working from home. And I imagine since they've made that a bargaining table issue, so to speak, that's critical. It's not just about wages. It's about the freedom and flexibility of having that time to yourself, which technology was supposed to give us. So now, okay, even though technology has the capacity to give this to us, we need the powers that be (laughs) to agree to bestow that, whether we're talking about the government or the big corporations or whatever. Yeah. A lot of people just, when you're in a position of power, they don't want to give up that power. A lot of people don't want to entertain the idea that their workforce or their staff is working from home all the time because they can't be monitored or whatever. And if they try to monitor them with software on your computer to watch you, it feels like Big Brother is spying on you and it feels weird. Yeah. And a lot of people don't take well to that. I certainly never did that when I was in charge of a company. And I don't think that's something I'd ever do. 
Um, I'd rather just give people their space and they either do the work or they don't do the work. And if you have a great team that feels motivated and they do the work, then your company will survive. Carson, one of the things you were telling me about during our pre-show discussions that I wanted to include in the episode, and I noted down here in my notes, was your involvement with the Downtown Plaza project and the sort of economic growth around the mill market. Is that something you could take a few minutes to talk to me about? I thought it was interesting, and it's not something I know a lot about, and I'd be curious to hear more. Yeah. So one of the projects that the city is pushing forward is the development of the downtown plaza, okay. which is slightly controversial to some people. Okay. I listened to an interview, I think it was Sue Today and Malcolm White, who is the CAO of the city All right. and also the mayor. And he talked about the boardwalk. And when the boardwalk was first developed, it was very controversial. People did not want the boardwalk to be developed. Oh, wow. And now... It's one of the most appealing attractions of Sault Ste. Marie, gotcha. having that waterfront recreational area. So yeah, the downtown plaza, I think it's going to be fantastic for sort of the rejuvenation of the downtown area. I'm involved in its back end in that I'm a board member of the mill market. Okay. And for the patrons of the mill market, most of you are likely familiar, but the mill market will be moving from the canal district where it currently is in the old fish hatchery oh, okay. right next to St. Mary's River. It'll be moving to the building that's adjacent to the downtown plaza. Sorry, so maybe I'm a good person to be leading questions about this topic because I know so little about it, which is basically nothing. When you say this was something that was somewhat controversial, like where was the controversy coming from? Like what was the nature? I don't understand. I think the controversy is in the amount of money that it's cost to develop the downtown plaza. Oh, okay. Which I think is just something that is very challenging to most people to see the amount of money it takes to run a city. Like most people do not, go onto the city's website and look at the budget. But uh, I think the city budget, uh, this is all publicly available information. The city budget is close to $100 million. So that's like a giant corporation. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's a large chunk of money that went into the development of the downtown plaza. And there's some questions in the community. Was this the best use of funds? I see. Could that money have gone to pave the roads or to some other infrastructure projects? So I think in that interview with Suit Today, Malcolm White and the mayor, they made a fantastic case for the development of the downtown plaza. Okay. Personally, I think it will be a benefit to the community. Just like that boardwalk you were talking about a moment ago. Yeah, it might not seem like the best use of funds in the moment, but in the years to come, I think we will all be thankful that the city pushed it forward. Yeah. In this downtown plaza, is there going to be like commercial leasing space for small business owners, like somewhere for people to conduct their whether it's storefront retail or it's like office-based stuff, is that creating a physical space for the community to engage in entrepreneurship? Yeah. So the mill market in itself is an incubator of small business. Okay. It's an opportunity for artisans, food producers, anyone who has a product to sell that doesn't want to rent a store. They can rent a space at the market cool. and not just the mill market. There's other markets in town, but they can sell their goods with less of a commitment than going out and getting a bricks and mortar location. Gotcha. And so part of this initiative, the city has purchased shipping container okay. retail units. I think a couple of them will be kitchens okay. and then a couple will just be for regular sort of retail. So those will be placed around the plaza on the outside of the plaza. And again, the, the mill market will be in the building that was previously the Greyhound Terminal. Gotcha. And then there will also be a splash pad in the summer and a skating rink in the winter. Okay. So it sounds to me, from what I'm hearing, that in order for something like this to truly come to life, it's going to involve everyday Suites to come forward and put their entrepreneurial energy into it and say, you know what, let's 
start something. Like what Tracy was talking about, I want to start a gluten-free restaurant, right? So she could do that through the mill market yeah. rather than building out a whole like McDonald's style restaurant all from day one. Yeah, I think farmers markets in general are a fantastic place for food businesses to start. There's a few people who have come in recently and want to start restaurants and they've moved forward to purchase buildings. Nice. And I've encouraged them, you know, before you open the building, get the kitchen certified and then come to the mill market. Yeah. It's a great way to advertise your business. It's a great way to give the public a taste of what you're offering. That's great. How do you get a kitchen certified? What does that mean? Get so, the kitchen certified. Yeah. So you'd have to go through this process with Algoma Public Health okay. to make sure your kitchen is up to the standards of the local regulations. Gotcha. So that's one of the things we're going to be covering in the workshop on June 14th yeah. with Algoma Public Health is how to do that, how to make sure that you're running your kitchen in a way that you're producing food that is safe. And you mentioned at that event, there's actually going to be a food inspector there talking to the audience. Yeah. So not only are you getting the information that you need to get your kitchen certified, yeah. but you're also cultivating that relationship with someone who's in that position of authority as far as food regulation goes. Yeah. So that's cool. Yeah. In my experience, it can be very simple to start a food business. As long as you're recording temperatures properly, you're making sure that you're preparing the food in a certain way. You can have a very minimalist kitchen with a couple tables, a barbecue, a flat top grill, some coolers, some thermometers, and it can be very lucrative. At a farmer's market, you've got a whole bunch of different food companies in one relatively small space because it's not one building for just one restaurant. If your thing is I'm selling this bunch of different fruit products that are all like gluten-free, how do you prevent cross-contamination between all these different food retailers that are all occupying this one market together? Generally, there's enough space between vendors okay. to prevent cross-contamination. If you had multiple vendors using the same prep tables uh, yeah. or equipment, then that might be more of an issue. Like okay. we touched on the idea of an incubator kitchen. That would need to be thought through in okay. that situation. You couldn't have the gluten-free restaurant working on the same prep table as the bakery or the traditional bakery. That makes um, sense. Yeah. 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 I think about these things at like a detailed yeah. level. If you actually want to make it happen, you have to focus on the details. Yeah, certainly. And customers will ask that. They'll be like, I have this allergy. Can you... Yeah tell me if there's a risk of cross-contamination. And we want to be able to tell them, like, look, this particular area where the food is prepared, no other types of food is being prepared here and stuff like that. Like, people want that peace of mind. Yeah, and so that's the type of thing that the Algoma public health inspectors would go through with you when you're trying to certify a kitchen. Yeah. Like, you need to have a safe food handler certificate to open a kitchen. Okay. And so it's a course you take. Okay. And so it teaches you don't want to be cutting the vegetables on the cutting board that you just cut the raw meat on. Right. Kind of simple stuff that we all, yeah. most of us know in our home kitchen not to do. Yeah. But they just want to ensure that everyone in a commercial kitchen, in a restaurant, knows these things. Yeah. You shouldn't cook meat and leave it out at room temperature. Yeah. Or you shouldn't leave raw meat out at room temperature in certain circumstances. Yeah. So basic things like this that just protect people. Gotcha. Yeah. Sounds pretty straightforward to me. Yeah. And that sounds really exciting that there's definitely significant investment that's being made to give people the space to build up these sort of small business ventures. My degree from my undergrad is in economics. I've always been passionate about this stuff. Like the overwhelming majority of economic activity in this country is small business. Yeah. It's, it's mom and pop shops. It's regular everyday average Canadians who are not making millions and millions of dollars. Like yeah. when you invest in small business, you're investing in everyday people. Yeah. Unlike like just this morning, I was listening to the CBC and I was hearing about something like $13 billion going into this manufacturing plant, something from Germany or whatever. I don't know the details, but the government's handing out like just an astronomical amount of money to these multinational corporations. And 
I think about, and again, like I don't know enough about the subject to have any strong opinions about it, but then I just, at a glance, I think to myself, like how far could $13 billion go if it was given to regular everyday mom and pop shop Canadians? Yeah. How much could you change the country from the ground up? instead of handing it out to super mega corporations. But yeah. I don't know. I'm yeah. not. And I think there's a place for kind of both yeah. both types of programs, right? Yes. Thankfully, we do have programs in the North uh, for run sure. by organizations like FedNOR, NOHFC, that do provide lots of opportunities to small business to receive funding to help oh, yeah. their business grow. FedNOR also provides larger amounts to larger businesses. And Algoma Steel is one recipient of the SIF program through a department, I think it's called ISED, Innovation Science and Economic Development. Yeah. They were just funded not too long ago for the electric arc furnace. Okay. So I think in total... This is going to be something like a $700 million investment in the community. So my understanding is this is going to make the steel making process much cleaner at Algoma Steel. Very cool. Which is fantastic, especially for everyone kind of living in the West End of the city. Yep. As a resident of the West End, I am very much looking forward to the the day when they turn that thing on and they turn off the Coke ovens. (laughs) To continue on that topic of clean energy, clean industry, Sault Ste. Marie I think it was about 10 years ago that city council gave Sault Ste. Marie the title of the renewable energy capital of North America. Oh, wow. And that was at the time when the wind farm was going up in Prince Township okay. and the solar farms were being developed in the east and in west ends of the city. So part of the work that the economic development team is doing is to continue earning that title. So recently there's been, I think, five proposals for large-scale battery storage projects. Okay. So that's very encouraging. We are in proximity to a lot of hydroelectric generation. And so being able to store that electricity and then disperse it as we need it will be a huge benefit to the community, especially with that electric arc furnace going in. That thing will need a ton of electricity. And so if those projects go forward, those will complement each other really well. Yeah, I was actually so excited to see so much investment in green energy shortly after I moved here. The timing was just perfect. I don't know if it was like maybe like a month or two after I moved into this house from the GTA. I bought this house and I parked my Tesla in the driveway. And in terms of charging it, all I was doing was like driving down over to the water tower inn where they have those Tesla superchargers, yeah. charge my car every few days or whatever. I didn't really need to charge it all that often because there's not a lot of time you spend using up your battery in a place as small as the Sioux compared to you spend hours and hours a day on the 401 down south. But uh, that was my primary mode of charging that car. And it was so soon after I moved here that I, I see this article on the Sioux today and I hear that PUC has launched this EV charging program. And right. I was like, that's so cool. They already power my house. Why not? So I reached out to them. I talked to Mark Britton over there at their office and they sent someone over to my house and they got it all hooked up and it was just so easy. It was so convenient. It's only based on current prices, like 35 bucks a month for all the charging I need, which is like a fraction of what I would pay for gas if it was a gas car or whatever. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. And they even had maybe a few months after, yeah, quite a few months after I installed it and I've been using it for a while, they sent a team over here to film, like I guess, like a customer testimonial little video thing. That was a lot of fun. They brought out the drone. They had the drone follow me as I drove the car around and yeah. like they got some shots of me plugging in the car. This stuff is just so fun. It's so cool to know that like you can just call up your local power company and they can just hook up an EV charger right on the side of your house and you can just yeah. plug it into your car and away you go. Like I said earlier in this podcast, like I'm a tech junkie. I love innovation. 
I love how much our lives can be enriched through new inventions. Yeah. And this is just, to me, I was really proud to see that in a, like a small sort of rural environment. You think I would have seen that sooner living in a place like the big city rather than coming to the Sioux and then seeing that. It was very refreshing. It was very inspiring to see that coming out of the Sioux. Yeah. To see all the Teslas on the road now. I get excited every time I see one. (laughs) Totally all in on the electric conversion of Canada and North America's fleet of vehicles. Yeah. As long as it works out in the long run, there's bigger brains than mine trying to figure that out and make it work. (laughs) But yeah, looking forward to the Cybertruck. The Tesla yeah, Cybertruck. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Like I would be driving one of those right now if it was even possible to get one. Yeah. But uh, I don't think the truck is available yet. So for that reason, I went and instead got a Toyota pickup truck. It's a nice one. It's a Tacoma. It does the job. It ain't no Cybertruck. Yeah. I'm just patiently waiting for that. And I don't know if Tracy's going to be as excited about the Cybertruck as I am. <laughs> She's seen pictures of it and she was like, I don't know about this. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's not really my style. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. People seem to either love it or hate it. <laughs> yeah. uh, I know I'm 33. So I grew up watching the uh, Back to the Future yeah. movies. Yeah. And the DeLorean. Yeah. The car with the gullwing doors. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was all stainless steel. Yeah. I think it's part of the reason that company went out of business because it was so expensive to produce that car. But it, it's really cool to see the Cybertruck be designed similarly. Oh, yeah. It's going to be fantastic for people living in the north that have to deal with the salt on the roads yeah. eroding their car over time. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting times. I think they have those gullwing doors on, like, the... I don't know if it's the Model X or the Model Y, but it's one of the yeah. two SUVs. Yeah. We saw it when we were down in the GTA for a while. We were walking around. I think it was Yorkdale Mall. We walked into the Tesla store, and we were, like, playing around with the door. It was coming up just like the DeLorean. It was so much fun. Yeah, pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I think they open much closer to the car. Yeah. The risk of like your kids smashing your door off the car next to you in a yeah. parking lot <laughs> is uh, significantly decreased with that design. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's definitely green energy movement here in the Sioux. Yeah. Way to go. Congratulations, yeah. Sioux. <laughs> yeah, we're working on it. <laughs> There's been a lot of interest in cross-laminated timber as well. Okay. Because we have the natural resources that we do here, there's a lot of timber available. So the city is working on some projects to try to make use of that technology. This is a way to use timber to build larger buildings and not use so much concrete and steel. Okay. So my understanding is you can build up to a 12-story structure with just wood. Wow. With this cross-laminated timber technology. So that's another sort of green business opportunity that the city is pursuing right now. I wasn't even aware of that. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately, I don't know much more than that. Okay. But something to watch out for. Yeah. Where do people even, obviously, a lot of people get their news from the Sioux Today or whatever, right? But I imagine the city must issue their own press releases. They probably have their own publications to keep people updated on what's Yeah, going the on. communications department will put out press releases regularly. Yeah. And then we have the Invest Sault Ste. Marie website. Okay. And the LinkedIn, the economic development LinkedIn pages. So, yeah, those are the places to go to find that information. Gotcha. Yeah, I'll check them out. I guess another place that people seem to be getting a lot of their information from these days is podcasting. Yeah. Especially in the last few years, even five, maybe 10 years ago, yeah, it was a much smaller space. But now it's almost as if a lot of the stuff that you might hear from the very first time, it's not switching on watching the news on cable TV. It's you heard about it in a podcast at some point and you're like, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Let me research that more. But you were first introduced to it through a podcast. Yeah, and I'm a podcast junkie. Yeah. L- love podcasts. Especially when I was farming, there was many long hours out in the field that yeah. I could also be learning something yeah. while I'm weeding or harvesting vegetables. 
So yeah, I've learned a ton over the years about farming, about nutrition, yeah. about real estate investments, stock market. Yep. Tons of valuable content to be gleaned from podcasts, which another reason why it was so cool to see that you started this podcast, yeah. a local version, a local opportunity to absorb that information. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's not like I've started something that didn't exist before. The Sioux has podcasts that are primarily focused on what's going on in Sault Ste. Marie. I just figured I would add my, I guess one way to put it is just add my voice to the chorus. And it was largely pursuing a personal passion of mine. It was more so for my own hobby and mental health. At least that's what it started out as. Like I was looking at what really makes me happy. And then that was the initial sort of seed. And then the more I got into it, the more I started connecting with interesting people in the community, the more I started having these long form discussions where I'm just enjoying the insight and knowledge of these people that know about things that I don't know, it started to grow in its purpose. It wasn't just about this is fun and I'm passionate about this and this is my hobby and this makes me happy. And now there's a community that benefits from this. There's an audience here. There are people who have very meaningful things to say yeah. on the podcast. Just the episode before yours, maybe a week-ish ago, give or take, we had the pleasure of having Karen Bird on the show. And she was talking about a not-for-profit organization that she's going to be starting soon. And the work that she's doing, I find to be so powerful and so meaningful. And if in some small way, us having her on the podcast it can support that work, it definitely gives me a sense of purpose. It gives me a sense of this stuff matters. Yeah. And yeah, podcast junkie. You nailed it right there. I guess I would say sometime in the last, I don't know, maybe just a couple of years, relatively recently, I started listening to all kinds of podcasts, especially long drives between the GTA and then the Sioux. And you also got to stop along the way to charge the car and stuff like that. So it's yeah. slightly longer drive when you're driving an EV car. But I don't mind that at all because it gives me an opportunity to just sit back and listen to these long podcasts and just enjoy it. You can listen to a whole, like some of our podcasts here on the Sioux Podcast, they'll be maybe two, two and a half hours long. Yeah. But if you're taking that trip down south or you're just whatever, like you've got something you're doing for a long-ish period of time, you can make your way right through a two and a half hour episode and you don't even notice the time go by because you're enjoying the episode so much that all of a sudden that long drive didn't seem so long anymore. And all of a sudden you're at your destination. <laughs> yeah, and it's fascinating that they've become so popular yeah. in the era of like short sound bites and 30 second TikTok videos. Yeah. Like the fact that a three hour conversation yeah. is appealing to anybody. Yeah. It's just mind blowing. Yeah. But uh, I, I guess if you think evolutionarily, we yeah. learned through conversation yep passing on knowledge through talking and stories yeah so it's almost coming back to that yeah there's a few ways to look at it right like in some sense there's a lot of people out there that feel isolated they feel alone like they're trying to connect but we just live in a world where human connection is difficult right like yeah. people have the demands of their jobs some people have to work multiple jobs to make ends meet that doesn't leave a lot of time for human connection you just seeing they're working all the time. We're collectively as a society going through things that makes it very difficult to just take a break, pause, and enjoy each other's company. So yeah, I think a lot of people are feeling very isolated. And when they get to tune into a podcast and listen for hours into the minds and the deep thoughts of people in their community, yeah. you know, like that's something I want to clarify when we're on the topic of podcasts in general. I could have started a podcast that would be focused on 
some general theme or topic that is relevant to the entire English speaking world. Like right. just a financial literacy podcast. There you go. Like yeah. most people need to have some degree of financial literacy to function in society. And I could just make a podcast that's relevant to that. And all of a sudden you have content that is directly relevant to millions of people. Yeah. Could have. But one of the reasons I wanted to create a community focused highly localized platform is because I feel like a platform like that has so much more potential to create meaningful, genuine human connection Yeah, where you're tuning into the show and you're hearing from someone who you probably have met in your day-to-day life. Like a lot of the people that know you either directly or like they're close with a friend of yours. So it's one or two degrees of separation or whatever. They're not tuning into a episode of something where they're hearing from some A-list celebrity that they're probably never going to meet in their whole life. They're tuning into a show where they like know the guest on the show. And the next time they see you, they're going to be like, hey, I saw your episode. It was so cool. I didn't know that you were involved in that. I've known you for so many years, but I feel like I know you so much better now. I had questions about whatever topic. Can I come out to the event on June 14th or whatever? It creates that sense of genuine, authentic community. And that to me was an idea I couldn't resist. I was like, all right, this is going to be the focus. Yeah. And you know what? That's what I'm doing for now. Maybe I do something different three years from now. Maybe what I'm doing five years from now bears no resemblance to what I'm doing today. I'm okay with that kind of change. I think that's what makes life interesting. Yeah. But you got to tell the stories as they happen in life. There's so much that happened over the last 10 or 15 years of my life that I just didn't get an opportunity to tell the world about. And it was such an adventure. There was so much happening, especially when you're in a crazy, high stress, high pressure environment like law. Some of the cases that you come across, obviously there are professional obligations where you actually can't talk about those cases for privacy reasons and stuff. But there are definitely cases where my clients would tell me, I want you to raise as much awareness about this as possible because people need to know. And wouldn't it have been great if I had a podcast back then? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I could bring to light some of the legal issues that people were facing in this country. Yeah. It's interesting to me that you've thought about it from the community building aspect. That's one of the things, if you listen to a lot of podcasts with the bigger names, they say the podcast has put me in front of far more viewers. And because they spend so much time listening to me, they understand me like on an intimate level. When they come up to celebrities in the street, it's like they've spent time with them. It's like they've spent hours and days and they're their friends. Yeah. So to take that and unleash it on a small community is, yeah, a fantastic way to build community, build relationships. Yeah. Oh, we need it so badly. Yeah. Yeah. Because I find if people are, and I don't want to get too much into it because we already dived into it with Megan Lambert's episode, but if people are facing pain in their life where they're going through something and it's tough, they have a weight on their shoulders and they don't know who to talk to and they don't feel connected with their community if they can like you just said they feel like they've spent hours and hours with someone and that person is right here in their community i feel like it does alleviate some of the pain some of the pressure and i believe from everything that i've read and seen and what the empirical evidence seems to suggest that human connection really is the remedy and the cure to so much of what we struggle with as individuals as communities we try band-aid solutions that aren't even solutions at all people will turn to alcohol and all kinds of stuff but what they're really craving is human connection. Yeah. yeah. I almost think that the long form conversation model 
could be a solution to some of the political problems we've been having in society. Oh, yeah. If you made it compulsory for people running for office to do 10 three-hour-long podcasts, (laughs) everyone would figure out very quickly whether or not they actually wanted to vote for this person or not. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're going to be like, the leader of an entire country of 40 million some odd people. Yeah. Yeah. I think 10 three-hour episodes, it should be a minimum requirement yeah. before you're making decisions that affect the lives of tens of millions of people in the country. Yeah. I want to yeah. get to know you like the guy I know down the street. Yeah. 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 Or yeah. even better. Right? Yeah. Like you're going to be passing laws that affect my life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> For sure. But maybe that day will come one day. Well, yeah. Like we were talking about chat GPT has made things happen in our society that we never thought would happen. Yeah. Maybe this is another idea. As crazy as it sounds today, maybe it becomes more commonplace for political leaders to do the rounds on the long form podcast circuit so that people can really get to know them. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them do. And it's always refreshing when I see someone running for office, do a three hour long podcast. Yeah. It's nice. That's authentic. If they're there and they're speaking authentically Yeah, and it's not just them in campaign mode the whole time. I think people can see through that. Oh, yeah. You can pick up on it if they're not being authentic, especially in that time span. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Carson, it's been so great having you on the show today. I say this so often to my guests. I've learned so much. And it's always such a pleasure to benefit from the insight and the knowledge of people that just know things that I don't know. And especially when we were talking about the greenhouses and stuff like that, like I literally had this vision in my mind of setting up that greenhouse in our backyard and just doing all that stuff. And I don't know, maybe Tracy and I will have some conversations about that. Maybe we can integrate that into our home here. I don't know. But it's stuff like that where when I sat down with you, I had no idea that we were going to visit some of the topics like that. And of course, I don't want to summarize all the different stuff we went through today, Mm -hmm. but suffice to say, it was definitely a fun conversation. For sure, I think that the audience is definitely going to feel the same way. I'm going to have fun sitting down and editing this episode. I'm definitely going to have fun putting it out there for the world to listen to. Yeah. Awesome, man. I really appreciate the opportunity. This was a fantastic conversation for me as well. I would encourage all the listeners to check out the Millwork Center for Entrepreneurship website. If you're interested in starting a business, come see us. It's a free service. So we're happy to help you get started on your entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, I think I'll leave it at that. I appreciate it. Tracy Ryan, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Sue Podcast. Follow us on Spotify, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. And be sure to check out our website at suepodcast.com. That's S-O-O podcast.com.